welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Today's program is made possible through donations from our listeners, like Ruth and Scott Brown, whose contribution is in memory of Zachary Ryan Brown, a loving son, father, husband, and sibling. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Medication-assisted treatment is considered the gold standard in treating opioid use disorder, but for some, it doesn't work. And for them, each use of illicit street drugs could be their last. This month, I was introduced to a program called Safer Supply that could be a game-changer for that segment to the population. Joining me on today's show is Staff Sergeant Connor King with the Victoria Police Department a drug investigation expert who introduced me to the Safer Supply program in British Columbia. As we begin, Sergeant King shares how Safer Supply came to be. I joined a group called the Drug Overdose Alert Partnership, which is, has been a really um, interesting and rewarding experience. It's truly a combination of experts in the field um, dealing with the opioid crisis. So you have medicine in the form of um, physicians, addiction specialists, you have epidemiologists, you have um, coroners from the coroner service, you have toxicologists, and then you also have police officers who have a lot of experience working in drug enforcement. We all came together under this umbrella of the of the overall um, management group and formed a lot of relationships um, where we were sharing information and trying to get a grip on what certainly you saw in the United States and we saw the same thing here in Canada, which was an explosion of overdose deaths starting basically around 2015 and carrying on uh, ever since. From those relationships, there were new opportunities to be really bold and creative. And one of those bold and creative programs was a safe supply. This was like this was the clinicians. This was the, the clinicians who said, look, we have got people who have been attempting to uh, access treatment and for whatever reason treatment doesn't work for them. Treatment can be something in the form of methadone, which everybody is is generally familiar with, or it can be some other um, opioid agonist treatment. Um, Suboxone is a really well-known um, one of those, um, but but treatment isn't working for them. So how would you describe that? How do you know when a treatment just doesn't work for somebody? They tell you, or is there some kind of a little more clinical way to diagnose that? Because, you know, a lot of people are going to say, hey, give me that, that you know, pharmaceutical grade stuff. I, I want that. That's a great question. So this is this is a developed because um, by way of the relationship between the physician and the patient, often somebody who accesses a safe supply, they do so by um, uh, meeting with their physician who they've known for years. 
um, or if they haven't known them for years, there is an extensive interview and then a look at the patient's medical history, which is all computerized. So somebody can't just walk into a doctor's office and walk out with a safe supply of opioids five minutes later. It's a very, very extensive and very um, regulated process. So to avoid that very thing where someone just says, look, I just want to get free drugs. That's not at all what this is about. This is about stabilizing somebody who is otherwise going to use the illicit drug supply. And I understand that is a rigorous process. In fact, the physicians involved in it interview some of the potential clients for as much as two hours before accepting them into the program. Was that right? Did I read that right? That's right. Two, two hours, pretty common to my understanding, as well as urine testing on an ongoing basis, interviews on an ongoing basis, um, pill counts on an ongoing basis. So if the prescriber is giving pills to the patient on a regular basis, the patient has to walk in and say, here, here are my pills that I have left. And they have to have the right number still in the bottle, or they have to um, subject themselves to a urine screening on a regular basis to see what other street drugs are they accessing. And if they are accessing other, other street drugs, then, then it's an ongoing conversation about, okay, well, are you actually working through this program properly? Should you remain in it? Or, or should this be the end of this program for you? So it's very highly regulated. When did that start? So it was actually um, quite a few years ago now. I mean, everybody's familiar with uh, with uh, methadone as you know safe supply in some way, shape, or form for decades. But more recently, it's been about four or five years in British Columbia where somebody could walk into a doctor's office and say, just as you've described, Greg, treatment's not working for me, but I don't want to die from a drug overdose um, by accessing fentanyl in the illicit market, and so. That's the situation where this person can then potentially be a, a candidate for the hydromorphone or MS lawn or some other slow release morphine. So it really took off around about 2015, 2016 with the um, recognition that the fentanyl um, crisis was upon us and that we were just not going to be able to rid the market of fentanyl saturation. And so there had to be an alternate to prevent overdose deaths. Was there law changes that were required at the federal level? Uh, yes, there were. So um, uh, the government of Canada um, provided for some um, uh, exemptions under the Controlled Drug and Substance Act to allow for um, the um, distribution of hydromorphone for its um, off-label use, so everybody knows that hydromorphone or the, what the brand name Dilaudid is typically used as a pain medication, and it wasn't designed as a opioid agonist or to treat opioid use disorder. So there were federal regulation changes that allowed for that, we would call it off-label use or alternate use. With the um, Vancouver example of the Crosstown Clinic, and this is a this is a clinic where medical grade heroin or diacetylmorphine is is provided to a very small and select and highly um, controlled group of people. That as well required, of course, a federal government exemption 
grade heroin could be imported into the country under, of course, the strictest of controls and then provided in the form of daily doses to a very small select group. So in that case, uh, there's a number less than 100 people who were heavily screened. Uh, these were people that were using street drugs, heroin slash fentanyl day in and day out in Vancouver. And they entered into the program. Uh, they visit the clinic multiple times per day and where they can access this medical grade heroin so that they know the dose of heroin they're using is free of fentanyl and it is the amount that they um, would normally use but without the risk of fatal overdose. And I read that some of them are going to the clinic as much as three to four times a day. That's right. Drug use, IV drug use for uh, typically for opioids on the street is three or four times per day. As a police officer, I, I have seen this for decades. Uh, you're going to see people uh, in the alleyways of our urban centers and they're injecting IV drugs and they're doing it all day long. Three or four times a day is, is pretty standard. That's about the amount of time uh, a heroin user will um, they'll, they'll feel the euphoric effects of heroin or the, the um, abatement of the withdrawal to get about two or three hours out of a heroin dose. And so when, when you turn that into, um, when you turn that into a clinical environment, then therefore that person needs to come every, every two or three hours, which equates to three or four times per day. Wow. So how has COVID impacted this? Well, COVID has had a terrible impact on the overdose crisis altogether. Um, here in British Columbia, uh, when COVID really hit us in full force um, and the quarantining and self-isolation measures took effect, um, which well, we will say uh, mid-March. Since that time, we have seen across the province a 63% increase in lethal overdoses. 63%, Connor, you said? Yes, yeah, 63% increase in, in, in lethal overdoses on the street. So this is people accessing street drugs. These are people not involved in the safe supply model, but just still accessing street drugs. Some of the reasons um, we think are uh, that people were encouraged to um, self-isolate and self-quarantine and, of course, physically distance, as we all were. And so, therefore, you get people who normally were living with roommates or um, uh, some other form of uh, living together in shelters, and they were all um, separated and isolated and quarantined. You get people using alone. You get them accessing uh, a very dangerous drug supply, and then you see a significant spike in overdose deaths. The Safer Supply program had to adapt quickly as COVID-19 emerged in Canada. The, the program was developed by the, by the health authorities of the, of the government of British Columbia um, and the police. We play a supportive role in this. Um, but what it means is that the situation we face with COVID is people, some people are able to access uh, safe supply, but they need to go to the pharmacy two or three times a day to access that safe supply. Now, in the context of COVID, they're being told, stay home, stay healthy, self-isolate, quarantine, et cetera. They can't come every day to the pharmacy and they are going to then turn to the illicit drug market to access the drugs that they use. So the new model in the COVID environment 
allows for the person to come to the pharmacy or the pharmacist to go to the person's home and prescribe or rather provide what the doctor has prescribed um, a 20 up to 23 day supply of the drugs that this particular person uses so they get the 23 day supply now this is again only for people who the physician and the pharmacist feel this is appropriate so they have to demonstrate um, emotional um, and cognitive stability and basically social stability but if those hurdles are jumped they can get a 23-day supply so then they don't have to either spend every day doing what they're not supposed to be doing which is coming out and going to the pharmacy and putting themselves at risk of contracting COVID-19 and of course you can appreciate that many people who are say chronically under um, under cared for in the healthcare system, homeless or whatnot, they have compromised immune systems to begin with. So they're at risk of contracting COVID at the best of times, coming out every day to the pharmacy or worse, accessing drugs from, from drug dealers puts them even at greater risk. So they get to carry the drugs. That is, a carry is provided for them to take the drugs away from the the uh, pharmacy, they have to agree to store them in a safe place. Um, if they're living in a homeless shelter, then they work with the staff and the staff help keep the drugs um, secure and only that individual who brought them into the homeless shelter can then access them. So this is quite a big departure from what we were looking at pre-COVID where people would come into the pharmacy, as I mentioned, on a daily basis. Now they can they can do what is being asked of them in the context of COVID, which is self-isolate, but they can also be provided with a safer supply of drugs and not have to access the illicit drug market. How is the threat of diversion mitigated? Right. Well, one of the ways is that the relationship between the uh, prescriber, the doctor, and the patient needs to be strong and and reinforced and also there is um the regulations that must be um, followed through with which is that the the prescriber will routinely ask the patient to come in and uh, for a follow-up visit and they can ask for a pill count and so the patient brings in their bottle of pills the physician counts the pills and makes sure that on say day 14 there are the right number of pills remaining um, they can also ask for urine screening to determine is this person actually taking the pills that we have given them if they're prescribed hydromorphone but they're showing no hydromorphone but fentanyl in their uh, urine screening then they can say well you're clearly giving away your hydromorphone pills or selling them and you're instead uh, accessing street level fentanyl and so through those means they are able to curtail the dispensement of the drug. So it's tightly monitored. It's tightly monitored. Um, and of course, you know, they, what we have seen, particularly in the context of COVID-19 with um, this change in prescribing model, the health authorities have been acutely uh, aware of the need to communicate with the police exactly what they're putting out onto the street. So we have seen a, a really uh, commendable level of communication and cooperation between both health and, and police, particularly in this, in this COVID context. Also, as part of this program, you've developed a homeless tent community, well, a resource for those that live in a homeless tent 
community, I should say, that is the Pharma Safer Supply Tents. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So here in Victoria, uh, immediately after the first days of the um, COVID uh, pandemic uh, beginning, um, the health authorities created a homeless encampment, essentially modeled after what you would see as a Red Cross refugee camp with strict guidelines about where tents could be placed, um, ensuring physical distancing between tents and between people. Part of the encampment included a um, overdose prevention site, um, which means that people inside the encampment, and for them only, they can use the overdose prevention site where they are able to ingest illicit substances um, under the supervision of medically trained personnel. Over the last couple of weeks, then that evolved into an environment where the safer supply rules changed and these new safer supply um, accessibility points were created where physicians come to the encampment and speak with um, clients to determine are they accessing uh, illicit and dangerous substances and are they a candidate for um, the safer supply. But again, there needs to be very uh, controlled and rigorous screening of these individuals. They're not handing these drugs out uh, to anybody who walks by in a, in a lineup. The clients often leave the site, meet with addiction specialists individually and rigorously. They're not cutting corners on the screening, but when the, when the screening takes place and all the appropriate hurdles are jumped, if they are, then that person can access um, the safer supply. And what happens at the encampment is that the person then can, can be provided their safer supply. Now, I will say that thankfully, that encampment was really just uh, an emergency measure, and the government has since closed the encampments and moved those many homeless people, hundreds of them, into um, cooperating hotels and shelters so that they, instead of having a tent over their heads, now have a proper roof over their heads and the safe supply has been moved from the encampment environment into the shelter or hotel environment where the hotels or the shelters are being co-managed by the health authorities. The success of the safe supply program wasn't a given, I understand. There were some real setbacks that had to be overcome. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those? Well, there's the Safer Supply Program is is really controversial in, in many people's minds. Um, and I understand that as a career police officer, it actually um, feels or felt in some ways um, counterintuitive to be putting more drugs on, on the street. Um, and we are always mindful of the problems of diversion and also the concept of are people actually just going to end up overdosing on the so-called uh, safer supply that goes out onto the street. But the studies have actually shown us different than our fears um, would have indicated. There is one, for instance, a study that was conducted in London, Ontario, uh, pre-COVID, um, this particular clinic, uh, they organized a group of 100 um, 
2011, uh, I believe it was, patients um, who were up, who were deemed candidates for the safer supply treatment. And they, at the onset of the of the program, they took some basic information from these rigorously screened people. They determined that uh, 62% of them were homeless, 68% of them were involved in sex trade work, and 48% of them used crime to pay for drugs. Now, that's really important for the police to understand is what are what are the social um, elements and what are the potential benefits of providing a safer, safer supply beyond just um, preventing overdose deaths, which of course is paramount, but are there any other benefits that we're gonna see as well? So four years later, they had zero drug overdoses amongst that 111 um, patients. It, the number of people who were homeless reduced from 62% to 38%. The number of people who accessed uh, sex trade work or, or engaged in sex trade work went from 68% to 20%. And then here's the thing for, for the police and for our, the police's um, incredibly important role of making communities safer, where 48% of those individuals uh, used crime to pay for drugs, that number was reduced to 12%. I just want to underscore the London study. While the sample size was small, the changes over a four-year period were dramatic, with 48% of the participants reportedly using crime to fund their illicit drug purchases, and that dropped to just 12% by the end of the study. 12% now of those people were using crime to pay for drugs. And that makes for a that makes for a much safer community. And that's really hard to match by enforcement alone. So there are, we, we see some pretty strong benefits from the safer supply program. I asked Sergeant King if there was any stigma associated with the safe supply program. Yeah, stigma is a stigma is a real tough a tough nut to crack. And I think it's just through it's through it's through conversation and education. Um, you know, how I approach it is this, is that virtually everybody now has lost somebody, uh, a friend or a family member in this overdose crisis. And what we have tried thus far, particularly through through um, the methadone program, whether you look, want to look at it medically or even rigorous in, in enforcement, um, we're just not seeing the results that we want to see. And there's, there are still, I believe, uh, roles to play for, for both of those um, components in Canada. Enforcement is still one of the pillars of our strategy um, when it comes to, for instance, border control. Um, we are working very diligently at the federal level to stop the importation of, of fentanyl into our country. But I think that there's there needs to be a recognition that if we we need to try alternate approaches, new ideas. We can't be afraid of we can't be afraid of of changing the conversation and changing the environment to at least look at what the alternatives are. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with more and more dead family members. And I think everybody would agree that that's just an unacceptable outcome. Sergeant King puts the program costs in perspective for us. I can tell you this: that when you look at the dosage that's handed out to an individual person. So the dose of 
uh, hydromorphone, or more commonly referred to as dilaudid, which is used to replace heroin. That's a, that is a matter of a few cents, a few cents per pill to provide to somebody so that they don't need to go and access street-level heroin. The cost of that same dose on the street, if they were accessing heroin as opposed to dilaudid, they would need about 20 to $30 for a dose, whereas if it's given to them through a medical regulated program, it's a matter of pennies. And so you can think of all the crime that has to occur when that individual needs to get 20 or $30 break into the cars, break into the houses, break into the businesses versus the 20 or the matter of a few cents or a few pennies for the legitimate source. So even there, you can see how one, uh, one regulated method of accessing these drugs is so much more uh, beneficial on a cost basis to a community than the other. We talked about some of the takeaways for other communities to consider. I think what I would want other communities to be aware of is that is that this program that we're using here in British Columbia, it's it's very far from some sort of wild, wild west free access to um, to opioids. It done right. Uh, it is um, very highly regulated. It's built upon the concept of stabilizing an individual who's not quite ready for the traditional treatments, but we need to get them off the illicit drug supply so that they won't become a casualty. And when they're not a casualty of that illicit drug supply, and they're routinely seeing their physician now to access a safe supply, then you open up the conversation with the person to move them towards a place where treatment can be right for them. And, and potentially for some, treatment never is, but, the, but at least they're stabilized and they're not committing crime ideally, and the community is generally better because of that. Or alternatively, if they're seeing their physician irregularly, they might move towards treatment and then eventually become come off drugs entirely and be a much uh, healthier and, and more um, stable citizen, which is what we want for our communities in general. I asked Staff Sergeant King to compare and contrast the Safer Supply program with the safe injection facilities that are located in Canada. The safe supply um, doesn't require the use of a safe injection facility. Um, the two stand separately when necessary, but can also complement each other. So we, we have both here in British Columbia. We have the safer supply that I've described where people can access um, medical uh, grade dose of a, of a substance to replace accessing the street level drugs. But the safe injection facility, or in British Columbia, we call them overdose prevention sites, that's where somebody um, can bring their own drug, something they purchased on the street, to an overdose prevention site, and they use that drug under the supervision of a medically trained personnel who can then intervene if there's an overdose. We have had overdose prevention sites in um, British Columbia since 2016, though we had our first um, overdose prevention site or supervised consumption site or service since 2003. And we are well versed in the use of these sites to help stop overdose deaths. And to this point, there has never been a fatal overdose in any of these sites. Every single time there has been an overdose in any of these sites, 
because of the high use of safe fentanyl, the overdose has been reversed and the person has been saved. I think I would say this, that from a police officer's perspective, my goal is safer communities. I want people to feel safe in the community and I want healthy communities. And I think that there's nothing wrong with looking around at alternate ideas and being brave um, with the concept of what's working, what isn't working, and other new ideas that we can at least try and see if it can make our, our community safer and for us safer supply. We have found that's been one of those new ideas that was definitely worth trying. We're happy with it so far. In the um, context of overdose prevention sites and, and so on, it's it's generally not even considered controversial here anymore. I know it's very controversial for for for, the, for folks in the U.S. and I get that, but we we have been into it now for five years. So get this: there is the the, the encampment that I mentioned earlier. They have moved many of those people into um, the hockey arena. Of course, it's a hockey arena because it's Canada, right? Yeah, and they're putting in in the parking lot of the hockey arena, they're going to put in a safe consumption site, right? So, or it's actually going to be an inhalation site so people can smoke drugs safely under medical supervision just outside the hockey arena in like a tented off area with fences and stuff. But here's the, here's the thing, that that arena shares a parking lot with one significant building in, in our city, the police department. And we're and it's not we're it's okay. Like we're, we're not. It wasn't like any penny of the sky is falling. Guys are like, that's well, well, that's fine. It's fine. We're, we've passed it. We passed the we passed the stage of this is the craziest thing ever. The police around twenty sixteen twenty seven. We realized we cannot arrest our way out of this. And I know that. I'm sure in your experience you've heard that term over and a over. million sure. times. Sure. In the context of, of the opioid epidemic. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. But we took it. We took it to heart. We said we we not only can we not arrest our way out of this, but we need to throw our support behind those people who are actually slowing and stopping overdoses. Which was the medical community who said, "Look, overdose prevention sites really work." And they, I have seen the studies. Unless the scientists are just fooling us, the studies show hundreds of lives are being saved by these things. So if we're going to put our money where our mouth is, and they want to open these sites, we have four of them in my city of Victoria. We just, we got to work with them. So I actually helped develop the guidelines for how these sites will interface with law enforcement because we just got right on board and said, all right, we can, we can stand outside the party looking through the window or we can get inside and get involved and steer these things to be what we need them to be for the community. So better to be involved than to miss the train as it leaves the station. The truth is that on the supply side, so the importation, we have thrown at, uh, by way of enforcement, we have thrown everything we we have at it. We have had task forces, and we have worked, you know, with the military. We have worked with the uh, Canada Border Services Agency. Um, my team of officers launched a, a fentanyl focus um, operation in the last for a couple of years. We have arrested dozens and dozens of fentanyl dealers. We've put them away. We've we've incarcerated them for some of the longest sentences that Canada has ever handed out for drug crime. The supply does not stop. It keeps pouring in. We can't we can't stop the supply. <laughs> and I I've gone on record, I've written op-eds about this, that fentanyl is here to stay. And and anybody who tells you differently, 
you would the easy thing is to say to them, well, if 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 you can't if you can get rid of fentanyl, why have you not got rid of heroin or methamphetamine um, or cocaine? Well, the truth is, law enforcement can't. We can't close the borders and stop the importation. So the drugs are always going to come in. So now we have to flip the switch and say, okay, if the drugs are coming in, how do we get people to actually just choose not to use those drugs? Or if they're going to use them, use an overdose prevention site so they're not going to die. But better yet, more forward thinking is, how do we get them to not use those drugs and use a safer supply instead? And what I hope as a police officer is eventually, if the people who choose to use these drugs choose to use them from the medical community and not the drug dealer, the drug dealer eventually, he'll have no, he'll have no job. My guest today has been Staff Sergeant Connor King with the Victoria Police Department, a drug investigation expert who introduced us to the Safer Supply Program in British Columbia. So what have we learned? We learned that providing pharmaceutical-grade drugs to their clients resulted in a dramatic reduction in overdose deaths. We learned the Safer Supply Program could address the homeless problem, with one study revealing a 24% drop in the homeless population after implementing Safer Supply. And we learned that Safer Supply could also help reduce drug-related crime, with a study showing a 36% drop in related crime. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 